0: From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Empire actor Jesse Smollett was charged last week in connection with what police say was an elaborate hoax. Smollett is accused of paying two men to beat him, tie a noose around his neck, and yell racist and homophobic slurs. Here is Chicago Police Superintendent Eddie Johnson as a, at a press conference after Smollett was charged.
1: Why would anyone, especially an African-American man, use the symbolism of a noose?
0: to make false accusations. How could someone
1: look at the hatred and suffering associated with that symbol and see an opportunity to manipulate that symbol to further his own public profile?
0: Johnson and others raise concerns about the effect that case could have on reporting actual hate crimes. Georgia is one of five states that does not have a hate crimes law, although legislation for such a bill was proposed last week. Megan Hansen authored a similar bill last year when she was a Republican state representative from Brookhaven, and she's joining us in the studio. Hello, Megan. Hello, Virginia. Well, thank you for being here. And with us on the line from New York City is Rachel Glickhouse. She coordinates national and local investigative reporting of hate crimes and hate groups for pro- Publica's Documenting Hate Project. Rachel, welcome.
2: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: Rachel, briefly, how is hate crime defined?
2: So the FBI defines it under the federal law as a criminal offense against a person or property motivated in whole or in part by an offender's bias. So that bias could be against race, religion, sexual orientation, ethnicity, Um, But essentially, it is a crime that was motivated uh, partially or totally by that person's prejudice against the victim.
0: Well, media attention, of course, is focusing on the Smollett case for false accusations. But ProPublica started this documenting hate project to get a more accurate count of actual hate crimes. How many are committed in the U.S. each year?
2: So in 2017, the most recent year that data is available, there were some 7,000 that the FBI reported. Um, However, that data is lacking because police don't have to send uh, their data to the FBI. Um, Around close to 90% of police departments that did send data said they had zero hate crimes. Um, There's another federal agency that does a survey uh, that shows that the number of hate crime victims could be up to 250,000 a year. Um, So there's a huge difference in those numbers. Um, And a lot of the problem is around counting that number um, by police, in addition to the problem that more than 50 percent of victims don't actually report crimes to police.
0: Well, we definitely want to dig into that. But how about in Georgia? Any data or uh, numbers specifically in the state of Georgia?
2: So in 2017, um, more than 500 agencies participated, meaning they sent something to the FBI, but only eight agencies submitted actual incidents. And the total number of incidents that were reported from the state of Georgia was 27, um, which seems pretty low Mm -hmm. um, considering the grand scheme of things. So that's, yeah, that was the most recent one.
0: Megan, last week, State Representative Chuck Efstration of Dakula uh, introduced legislation that would create sentencing guidelines, quote, for anyone convicted of targeting a victim based on race, color, religion, national origin, sexual orientation, gender, mental or physical disability. What would that legislation accomplish?
1: Well, that is specifically for misdemeanors. Um, and it would, if convicted um, by the jury, would add an additional three to 12 months, depending on the crime. Um, which, in my opinion, is a great first step. It it speaks volumes to um, juries or um, judges seeing the importance of um, punishing hate crimes.
0: Now, you were among legislators to introduce similar bills last year. How does this current proposal differ?
1: Um, Right. So I introduced a bill that uh, covered misdemeanors. It covered uh, felonies. It it actually extended to civil um, civil crimes. I'm sorry. Yeah, civil uh, issues. um, But it also provided for training and for recording, which was one of the reasons why I believe that I had such um, strong support from law enforcement, because that's something that, um, as Rachel mentioned, they're really looking for is some direction as to what is a hate crime. And they need something on the books to be able to determine what it is to then report it. And then keep accurate numbers
0: so that bill never made it out of committee. Why do you think it failed ultimately?
1: um you know there were um, probably a lot of reasons <laughs> uh, There were two bills actually that were pretty similar, and they both got hearings, and um, they never actually came for a vote and so I, i'm not I actually think that if there had been a vote taken, it would have come out of subcommittee and then moved on to the next committee for a full committee hearing. Um, but for a number of reasons I could suspect, but, uh, won't, <laughs> um, that just, it, it didn't happen this year. But, but I think, you know, the fact that there's another Republican who is the chairman of his committee, which is the committee that it was before last year, which is a different chairman from last year. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that this is a, a great show of, uh, a first step and the ability for this year's bill to move.
0: Well, let's talk about some of the opposition. Uh, Rachel, uh, one of the arguments against hate crime legislation centers on free speech. And in the U.S., hate speech is legal, different from, say, uh, in Britain, for example, where such speech is illegal. How do you respond to the argument that hate crime legislation erodes First Amendment rights?
2: Well, that's not what it's intended to do, right? It's, it is intended to target uh, crime, actual crime. Um, and to therefore increase penalties for people who commit those crimes. So it defines the definition of uh, the the actual adding of the, the bias-motivated part is that the police and, and investigators must prove that the person was acting out of prejudice, out of bias against the victim, and that that is specifically why they committed the crime. It, what, um, what are some so, of the
0: ways that local law enforcement can... Prove that. I mean, you're talking about intent, right? Um, right. Exactly. Megan's nodding here. Do you want to pick that up? <laughs>
1: um, sure. Yes. I mean, there are a number of crimes that I looked into when I was uh, studying this bill before dropping it, um, where, for example, the uh, perpetrator had you know yelled racial slurs or epithets, and um, you know. They had spray painted various incendiary, you know, a swastika, for mm-hmm. example, on a synagogue. Uh, usually, and, and then also police uh, or just general law enforcement will tell you, they will tell them why they committed these crimes. I mean, they're, they're, it's unabashed about, um, you know, what their motivation was. And so all of these things can go towards uh, the proof, the evidence needed to convict them of a hate crime if there's a statute on the books.
0: That's Megan Hansen. She's a former state rep who pursued legislation against hate crimes here in Georgia. Also with me, Rachel Glickhouse, project manager of ProPublica's Documenting Hate Project. Well, another argument is that hate crimes laws don't necessarily work or can actually hurt the people that they seek to protect, making them feel more like outsiders. What do you think here, Rachel or, or Megan, if you want to pick that up? Could it be more harmful than helpful to have a separate law that paints some people as the other, the protected?
2: Um, I've never heard that one before. Um, I, I would disagree with that. The, the purpose of hate crime laws is um, in order to specifically give a person justice um, for this very insidious type of crime. And to have a little bit of uh, symbolism in the criminal justice process that says, uh, sends a message to the community and not just the victim that says this type of crime is not going to be tolerated um, and it will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Well, let me Um, ask you then, why do you think mm -hmm.
0: uh, more than 50 percent of the people who say that they were victimized do not file complaints?
2: So uh, there's a lot of mistrust. Um, in some communities who already have a poor relationship with police, and they don't trust that if they go to the police, they will take their uh, complaint seriously. Um, Some victims are humiliated and don't want to relive the story over and over again. There are a variety of reasons, but uh, some of them do boil down to relationships that these communities have with police and the trust they have to move those cases forward uh, in the criminal justice system. Well, ProPublica
0: has investigated how law enforcement is trained to deal with these kind of hate crimes. What did you find?
2: So we found that it varies very widely all over the country and it varies by state. Um, Not every state has a statute on the books that requires police to get hate crimes training while they're in the academy. And sometimes police do get training, but it's very, very minimal, maybe half an hour or an hour. In the total of their their training. Um, So it means that some police uh, really have no knowledge of these types of laws or how to investigate um, and what the best practices are uh, in terms of investigating these crimes and tracking them internally.
0: Well, Megan, you had broad support from law enforcement, including from former Georgia Bureau of Investigations Director Vernon Keenan. What did the GBI and local law enforcement agencies in Georgia tell you about why they supported this legislation?
1: They really liked the um, training and reporting aspects of it. I mean, it, it would lead to equal applicability. Um, or enforcement, rather. And um, that was something that was key to them to help them do their job. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they thought it was important that we um, give them the tools that they needed to do their job so that other commun- you know, communities that were being impacted felt safer. I mean, that, that's what they signed up for.
0: Well, we know that conservative media in particular and others have have zeroed in on the Smollett false accusation and criticized how quickly Democrats, for example, were willing to jump onto this. But I'm wondering for you, uh, you know, you were a Republican representative. Why was this legislation a priority for you?
1: To me, this is an issue of right and wrong. This is not something that should be politicized in any which way. Um, You know, hate crimes. I think Rachel touched on it are uh, not only crimes against an individual, but they're crimes against a community. And anytime you have something like that, I mean, it, it goes beyond politics, because that likely that community is of all different types of political beliefs and persuasions. So um, I, I think that that's just a whole other issue than, you know, what a hate crime is, or, you know, should it be a law or this that or the other? It's just those two things don't collide with me.
0: Rachel, do you have any data on, of course, let's just enforce that Smollett is guilty and I'm um, innocent, rather, than prove, until proven guilty, and he says he is innocent. But do you have any idea of how many false reports are made?
2: So um, there's a researcher in California named Brian Levin, um, and the number he's been um, sharing recently is that uh, he believes the number to be less than 1% of all reported hate crimes. Um, And I think that is actually a smaller amount um, than the number of uh, falsely reported um, sexual assaults. So it's sort of in that neighborhood.
0: Well, that sounds like a lot of people from state legislators to law enforcement, as we're hearing here, do not have a consistent understanding of hate crimes. Rachel, how, as somebody who's looked at this, do you think that that should be addressed?
2: Um,
0: Of how police look at hate crimes? Yes, or or understand, like, what is a better way to communicate to either the public or to state legislators who are considering this kind of thing, what kind of effect they have?
2: Sure. So I think um, it's important to look at cases that are successfully prosecuted, uh, that have um, a full outcome to show what the law can actually do. Um, these cases are difficult to prosecute because you have to prove intent. Um, But I think looking at some cases um, where the police did an excellent job with the investigation and were able to bring it to trial and successfully prosecute it um, would be a first step to show how this actually can work in practice.
0: Rachel Glickhouse of ProPublica, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you. And Megan Hansen, she's a former state representative, now serving as an attorney. Thank you so much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Now, coming up, we're going to speak with Washington Post editor Steve Luxenberg and shed some new light on Plessy versus Ferguson, a monumental landmark case in American history and one that not a lot of people know about. I'm Virginia Prescott. You can catch that when On Second Thought continues. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. If asked about Plessy versus Ferguson, many Americans might connect the case to racial segregation. Far fewer would know the name Homer Plessy, or what happened after he was arrested for refusing to leave a whites-only railway car in New Orleans in June of 1892. Author and Washington Post editor Steve Luxenberg discovered that the act of protest was decades in the making and that Plessy, a fair-skinned man of African descent, was the perfect plant to challenge the constitutionality of separate rail cars in a case that made its way to the Supreme Court in 1896. The resulting decisions sanctioned decades of racial subjugation and violence under the separate but equal doctrine. Luxembourg's book, Separate, revives the era and the characters from abolitionists to Supreme Court justices in vivid detail. He's going to be talking about it tonight at the Atlanta History Center, but we're welcoming him now from WHYY in Philadelphia. Steve Luxembourg, hello.
3: Hi, Virginia. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, thanks for being here. There's so much revealed by your research into the origins and aftermath of this case. But first, why were you so interested in it?
3: Well, for 40 years as a reporter and editor, uh, I felt like I had edited a lot of stories in which race was either the central issue or was a a part of the, the secondary issues. And yet... In in, uh, 2011-12, I felt like I really didn't understand the roots of our racial conversation. And I do think our national conversation centers often on race. Hmm. We're, We're either talking about it or we're avoiding talking about it. Uh, And I wanted to understand the the roots of racial separation in particular, because I think that that is what remains as a reverberation from Plessy. And so I felt that to go back into the 19th century would help me understand that story.
0: Well, and there are many popular beliefs that are shattered. We learned, for example, that segregation started not in the South, but in railroad cars in Massachusetts, the cradle of liberty. This was a rail company decision on what grounds?
3: Well, it's 1838. It's the dawn of the railway age, and there are eight new railroads operating in Massachusetts. Only three of them adopt separate cars, which shows you already that we have a division about what customers might want. And they think that, one, there'll be violence if the races are mixed. Two that it's a business decision. That is, the white customers, and there are many, many, many more white customers than there are black customers, the population of Massachusetts in 1840, only 1% are people of color. Uh, That's what they will want. Now, of course, the other five that didn't do it thought that white customers wouldn't care. But the Eastern Railroad, when it opens for business, has a separate railroad car, and within a month, Within a month, there's an article in the Salem Gazette, which popped up in my digital digging, Hmm. uh, talking about the Jim Crow car. And I was stunned by this. I mean, Jim Crow is is a term that I associate with the late 19th century and, of course, the 20th century, but not 1838. And already, it seemed like the newspapers, their readers, the train crew, they were using this term. And my best educated research guess is that uh, the Jim Crow minstrel show was so such a popular entertainment at the time. The the white man in blackface, uh, the, the racist caricature, that. His song, uh, Every Time I Jumped Jim Crow, had, been, had already migrated into the political conversation. So politicians who were changing their mind were called Jumping Jim Crow. And so the, the phrase Jim Crow, was not, it was not hard to see how it could be applied to a railroad car.
0: Mm. When the segregation clearly long preceded the Civil War, you're talking about 1838. How did they challenge this Jim Crow car separation, or dirt car, as it was also called?
3: Well, you know, it's, it's, it's very, very interesting. You have to think of the abolitionists as any political movement. And they're going to their night meetings at their chapters around the state of Massachusetts, and they're going on horseback before the railroad goes into existence. And they are thrilled to be in the comfort. It's not very comfortable in these early cars, but in the comfort out of the rain of these railroad cars. But something is changing in 1841, which is that the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society, which is the chief abolitionist group, has hired a black man to be their newest agent. And his name is Frederick Douglass. He's three years out of his enslaved condition in Maryland. He has given a speech recently. They are enthralled by the way he can orate, and they hire him. And he's riding the trains in the company of a white abolitionist, and the conductor on the Eastern Railroad is unhappy and wants to separate them. Well, the white abolitionist says, well, if you're going to put him in the dirt car, I'm going to go with him. Well, that's not going to happen either. So confrontations happen, friction happens, and the abolitionists are both appalled, but they're also excited (laughs) because this gives them a new issue. Mm -hmm. And I go to the Massachusetts State Archives and I ask for the petition that Douglas and William Lloyd Garrison, the famous abolitionists, and others have signed asking the Massachusetts legislature to ban separate cars on railroads. And they unfold it, and they unfold it, and they unfold it. It's a 1,000 signatures. It measures 14 feet long. And when they had to refold it, I said, that, that's going to be your job. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> uh, but it shows you how much resistance there was. Um, so already, and, uh, so you asked before, well, why the North? And the North is, is the only place where there are any, any sizable numbers of free blacks. Nobody in the South is going to be separating masters and the enslaved population. But the question that the railroad brings into existence is a question that had not really been asked before, which was, where do I sit? Hmm. I mean, a stagecoach is tiny. A horseback, you don't have to worry about who's sitting with you. Uh, but a railroad car is, is, is a great vehicle for throwing together a mass of humanity. And so it, it raises these questions. And by 1843, the, the separate cars on those three railroads have gone away after pressure uh, from the legislature. Uh, the legislature was asked to pass that law banning it. They didn't want to do it because Charles Francis Adams, the son and grandson of two presidents, he was reluctant to tell a corporation what to do. He thought mm-hmm. it was a bad precedent. Uh, that sounds familiar today, doesn't it?
0: Yes, it does indeed. But I love the, the details in this book are so great. In fact, Frederick Douglas continually challenged by boarding the train. So <laughs> one of the tra- rail companies just stopped cease stopping in Lynn, Massachusetts, where he would get on. That's a name we recognize, Frederick Douglass, but many here that we don't necessarily know, like Albion Tourget. Who was he?
3: Well, he was, in 1890s, the most famous white advocate for civil rights in the country, arguably. He'd achieved that status through writing, he was a best-selling novelist. He had gone down to the South after the Civil War, which he had served in, determined to make the Union better than it was, uh, playing off the Lincoln phrase, we want to restore the Union as it was. And he proudly wore the, the, the label of carpetbagger. He was a radical. Of, uh, he, didn't always, he wasn't always a radical. His, his, his uh, girlfriend at the time in the 1850s was more radical than he was and complained to him about that. And that's part of the book, too, because I, the, 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 the wives in the story are very important, I think, to mm-hmm. the success of, the, of their husbands. Uh, but he, uh, he comes out of uh, North Carolina with two novels. The first of which is called "A Fool's Errand" by one of the fools. He's been banished from North Carolina, more or less, because uh, he's, as one newspaper called him, the most hated man in North Carolina, which was probably true in white supremacist circles. And he uh, becomes a best-selling novelist. He later becomes a, a widely syndicated newspaper columnist with a column he calls "The Bystander," which is extremely ironic given his activism. Hmm. He's no bystander, and the the new orleans committee that brings this case is just writing to him for advice in 1890 and one thing leads to a, the other he offers to take on the case pro bono they are thrilled This is the plessy they, case in the end the plessy case uh, i mean they're thrilled because they have Albion Turge on their side he's thrilled because he has a case he can fight and he loves fighting and so uh, he becomes the lead lawyer in the case with as Lu- louis martinet the french speaking mixed race uh, head of the committee, says y- we-, we give you total control of the legal strategy.
0: Mm, and there are some great flourishes. As you said, we learn about his wife as well, a lot about his life, including that he added an accent over his E in his name, giving him some, I don't know, continental appeal? I'm not sure what that was about.
3: Well, I think it's an affectation. I think he was also maybe trying to help us pronounce it, but... Uh, I- You know, he he was always looking for a little embellishment. Uh, He did it in his legal arguments. He did it in his uh, political arguments. Um, He was not a man who uh, worried about the facts all the time.
0: Mm. (laughs) We're learning about a pivotal case in American history with Steve Luxenberg, author of Separate, the story of Plessy versus Ferguson and America's journey from slavery to segregation. Well, you mentioned Louis Martinet, who became a colleague and of sorts. He was the editor of The Crusader. This was a newspaper for the significant population of people of color in New Orleans. Now, this city, New Orleans, becomes a significant character in this story. What is it about its distinctive racial history that made it the perfect crucible for this fight against segregation?
3: Well, I, I say in the book that I doubt that this case could have come out of any other city in the country because New Orleans then, and some people would say now, is unlike any other city in America. In 1803, when the Americans take over New Orleans in the Louisiana Purchase, um, a provisional governor arrives, and he is astonished to find that he has 6,000 free people of color, as they call themselves, uh, awaiting him. And not just that. They have a militia. They have weapons. They're not. They're not using them to fight anybody. But they have status. They have some wealth. They have not been. For the most part, they are not slaves. Although their ancestors had probably been enslaved in the French and the Spanish periods. But through the century, in 1814, the Battle of New Orleans, they're recruited to fight on the on the American side. In 1863. Some of them fight on the Union side, and they also see an opportunity to ask for the rights that they've been agitating for for half a century. After the Civil War, after the Reconstruction Amendments that enshrine equal rights into the Constitution, they are always looking to become more than the sandwiched layer that I call them in the book between the white population and the formerly enslaved population. So they've never had full rights. They, they're not allowed to do certain things, but they've been better off than being enslaved. In fact, some of them were slaveholders themselves because that was a route to wealth and education. But by 1890, they have accumulated enough wealth, enough education, enough clout that they are angry and they're, they're unhappy and they're not going to stand for this 1890s Louisiana Separate Car Act. And so they, they announce in the Crusader, the newspaper that Martin A. ran, uh, that they're going to bring a test case. Uh, And then they, you know, they don't do it right away because it's hard to do. And they finally figure out a strategy uh, a year later.
0: Well, Louisiana also had no legal definition of Negro, quote unquote, or colored person. So so as you point out in the book and as became part of the strategy, it's kind of an unenforceable law kicking somebody off of a, a car if you don't know where what their origins are.
3: Yeah, one of the great arguments that, that James Walker, who is the co-counsel for Terget, he, he really gets into this. He likes researching this. And he comes up with a list of all of the states that have definitions of, of what it means to be a person of color and the ones that don't. And Louisiana has no definition. So one of their arguments is, well, how are you going to judge the race of someone like Homer Plessy, who was specifically, as you had indicated before, chosen uh for this for this assignment it is an assignment he he's supposed to get arrested he's not supposed to 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 reach his destination his destination is jail Uh, he he is arrested um, and they want him to be fair-skinned enough to cause confusion Mm -hmm. they they want to be able to argue that let's say you were the railroad conductor mr supreme court justice and you were walking down the aisle how are you going to tell the race of the people in new orleans some of them are white, some of them are black, and they're every shade of the spectrum. So it's unenforceable unless you tell us what the definition of color is. Now, the Supreme Court ignored all those arguments, <laughs> but, but it's a good argument.
0: What happened exactly on June 7, 1892, when Homer Plessy bought his first-class ticket, boarded the whites-only car?
3: Well, the railroad was in on it. Because they wanted to test the law, too. They had an economic reason, which not all railroads in the South would have, some railroads in the South wanted to have separate cars. They thought their customers wanted separate cars, or they were racist and didn't think they should mix. But in Louisiana, it's expensive to run two cars when you could get by with one. And there weren't a lot of black passengers, so they, they saw this empty car or – they began to partition cars. That is, make half of them white and the half of them black, mm-hmm. and that was another way around around the law. But so Plessy boarded, and you, you can read stories in which he's been ejected forcibly and manhandled. But those stories are, are I think, a little embellished. He was escorted off of the the, the uh, car and into the waiting hands of people who were going to take him down to the to the courthouse to be put in jail very temporarily, because the last thing that the committee wanted was its volunteer to spend a long time in jail. That, mm-hmm. wouldn't, have been, that wouldn't have been good for recruiting future volunteers. Uh, and that's what happens to him. And so now the question is, can we get a court case in which he can be convicted and therefore go to jail? And we can argue what's called habeas corpus, which is a Latin term for the, the holding of a body illegally. You know, we're going to argue that you can't hold him because the law is unconstitutional. Well, they don't really like that strategy, but it's their best guess as to how they're going to get to the Supreme Court because it requires Plessy to be in jail at some future point after his conviction. Mm. Well, they avoid that and they're thrilled that they can do it on an error. It's called of the judge's ruling, that's Judge Ferguson of Plessy versus Ferguson, on his ruling that the Louisiana law is constitutional. And they, they take an error on that, and that allows them to argue without Plessy having to go to jail.
0: Well, I just wanted to pull in that mention that the rail car company was in on it. In fact, there was a private detective there on hand, ready to make this arrest, all staged. But have you ever found other cases of resistance? Because there were many. There were on steamboats, there were on rail cars, on stagecoaches. In New Orleans, several cases based on cost rather than moral grounds, you know, where the company might calculate the cost of lost business by white people versus the cost of separate accommodations.
3: Most of the cases cited as precedents by the Plessy court, the seven to one decision that, that occurs, are from the north. Because that's where separation had taken root, and that's where the, the lawsuits had arisen.
0: Well, we're going to hear more about the critical landmark case with Steve Luxenberg. He's senior editor of The Washington Post and author of Separate, the story of Plessy v. Ferguson and America's journey from slavery to segregation. He's going to be at the Atlanta History Center tonight and back with us after a short break. But for now, we're going to leave you with Big Bill Brunsey, his song about the degrees of racial separation, black, brown, and white.
1: I hope built this country, and I fought for it too, now I'll guess that you can see what a black man have to do, he says if you was white, she's
0: alright, if you was brown, stick around, but as you black,
3: we're brother, get back, get back, get back.
0: From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott, back with Steve Luxenberg, author of Separate. It is a lively, detailed history of the characters and origins and arguments and aftermath of the landmark Plessy versus Ferguson case. That's the 1896 Supreme Court decision ruling that racial segregation was constitutionally sound under cover of the Separate but Equal Doctrine, which opened the floodgates for Jim Crow. It was, in the words of writer and historian Walter Isaacson, a knife that cleaved America. And that division would remain until overturned by the Brown versus Board of Education decision six decades later. Steve Luxemburg is speaking in great detail about the book at the Atlanta History Center tonight, but we're grabbing some time with him this morning. Steve Turge and Martinet considered Louisiana Separate car Act to be unenforceable, as we said. But there's a really interesting account of how precisely and strategically they considered the case to be made and how to trigger it. Did you know when you started researching how deep that went?
3: Well, I knew because I'd done a preliminary amount of research that Martinet's and Turge's letters in which they go over their strategy. Martinet uh, lived in New Orleans turgé lived in upstate new york in far western new york he never went to new orleans it was all done by letter and all those letters survive in the turgé collection uh in in western new york and i went there and i read enough to know that i could i could construct a narrative that would be detailed and lively and colorful about what their thinking was and of course as a narrative writer i'm not a constitutional historian i'm not a legal scholar i i couldn't have done this book without those letters what's fascinating to me about it is, is that they not only, I mean, Turgay was the kind of guy who thought that it was better to throw too many arguments at the court than not enough. Now, last week in Baltimore where I live, I was on a, a stage with the former chief justice of the Maryland Court of Appeal. And I said, if he had thrown all those arguments at you, what would you have told him as a lawyer about the strategy? He said, I would have told him not to do it huh. because it's just too many. The court can't deal with all those. You've got to pick your best arguments and go after them. So one of, one of most inventive arguments, most inventive arguments, and I think it's important, you know, lawyers want to win <laughs> mm-hmm. and sometimes they choose arguments that might be a winner. It wasn't in this case but might not be the best argument for the future. So he argued that he he saw this court. He kept a tally of what he felt were the hopeless judges, the likely judges, the the judges who were going to be on his side. Only Harlan fit into that category. And he said, well, they're all men of property, so let me give them a property argument. And And the property argument was your race and your reputation are your property, your property, and no one can deprive you of those without due process of law, using the 14th Amendment language. And a conductor can't do that walking down the aisle of a railroad train, but that's what this law is asking him to do. Well, the problem is, is that that's fine if you can pass for white, as Homer Plessy could, but if you're black and it's quite clear that your color is dark, what is that going to mean if you win this argument? That means we're going to have a a car with white and mixed race passengers, and then over here we're going to have a black car? That's still separation. So I don't really I never really understood what he thought he was going for there, except that he wanted to win. And he thought they might buy that property argument.
0: Well, I want to get to the justices that he studied in great detail. But first, I wanted to talk about on the legal team for the Plessy case. Uh, Of course, Homer Plessy arrested. The case goes to a local court, Louisiana State Supreme Court and then Supreme Court. And you did mention that uh, the Honorable John Ferguson, the judge, played right along. You know, he did not sanction the case. But there is another name that we don't necessarily learn in history class serving as legal counsel. His name is James C. Walker. Now, why did this former Confederate soldier want to argue this case?
3: Well, like a lot of people in the book, he evolves, I think. I don't know a great deal about James Walker, but Martinet needed somebody local to argue the case he thought about doing it himself argue the case in louisiana courts because turgé wasn't coming there and it would have been prohibitively expensive to bring him down there and have him do the arguments and, and turgé did not have he wasn't a wealthy man despite his very best-selling novels um, so they needed a local counsel. they needed a washington council uh, and and walker he decided was the was the best legal mind to take on the task um he actually wrote to Turget at one point and said, you know, I'd like to hire a person of color, a lawyer, to do this, but I don't think any of the ones locally are up to it. Now of course we don't know today whether or not that was a kind of bias on Martinet's part. Um but he, he didn't they didn't go in that direction. And Walker is their choice. And and he's a very good lawyer. I mean it's clear in his, his letters to Touget, he's pointing out all the problems in the case. But but You know, Terje had to scold him at one point and said, stop thinking so narrowly. Even if we get a decision, even if we get a decision that says that your arguments are wrong, at least we know where we stand. And he wanted a clear – the committee wanted a clear-cut decision, he told, he told Walker. And Walker kept on coming up with these arguments about the technical wording of the statue. And, and Tourgette knocked those aside and said, I'm not going – in our language, he would say, I'm not going small. I'm mm-hmm. going large here. Mm-hmm. Um, and he – and the, the lawyer that they hired in Washington – was the former Solicitor General of the United States, Samuel Phillips. And th- this was done very strategically as well, because there's no lawyer you want appearing before the Supreme Court more than Samuel Phillips. The justices knew him, they would respect him, and at least gave you that little edge that you're always looking for.
0: Well, let's look at some of these justices. The key here, Henry Billings Brown, John Marshall Harlan, too, that you spend a great deal of time in the, for this book. Let's start with Brown. He went to Yale and Harvard, though he didn't get a degree from either, avoided the draft. Not somebody that we generally think of as Supreme Court justice material. Can can you give us some background on him and how he got there?
3: Well, that's what drew me to the story in part. I mean, race drew me to the story and our national conversation. But Brown and Harlan, if you had to predict who would end up where, you would predict them going the other ways. I mean, Harlan is the one from a slaveholding family originally originally. Brown grows up in abolitionist necks of the woods in Massachusetts and, and Connecticut. So he seems like the kind of guy who would be on the dissenting side here. But Brown, he, I'm going to correct you a little bit. He went to Yale and Harvard. He went to Yale as an undergraduate. He did get a degree mm-hmm. as, a, as an undergraduate. He goes Forgive to Yale me, Henry
0: home. Billings Brown's reputation. <laughs>
3: He, he, he goes to Yale and Harvard Law Schools. He doesn't get a degree, but that was not uncommon at the time. Uh, people didn't finish law school necessarily. Some didn't go. They just read the law under the tutelage of somebody else, and the most important thing was to pass the bar, which he did in Detroit, where he had moved to as a young man in 1859. This moving west that was what it was called <laughs> in those days. That was the West mm-hmm. was, was something that was done in order to try to you know, make your, your claim and stake your reputation. So it's really important, I think, to realize that in the 19th century, not only didn't they not mind telling you how ambitious they were. I mean, today, I think we avoid that. If you, if you meet somebody at a, at, a, you know, at a conference or a party or something and they say, I'm really ambitious, you say, ooh mm-hmm. <laughs> not sure I want to hang. Not in the 19th century. Uh, in the 19th century, if you weren't ambitious, that was a mark against you. And Brown would re- frequently note in his pocket diaries, some of which survive, he would fr- frequently note, why don't I have more ambition? Why aren't I a better speaker? Am I going to make my mark in the world? I'm worried I'm not going to make my mark. And this is what he wanted to, to do. And he finally realized that being a judge, <clears throat> being a judge was his was his metier, uh, not only because he could uh, have a sort of less stressful life, allowing three months of the year to go traveling, which he loved to do. he liked he loved to go to Europe. Uh, but he also just really liked the law and not the politics. Hmm. Harling was the opposite. He was a political guy who became a judge. Uh, so this these are the two characters who are in contradiction to each other in the book. And fortunately, they, they do leave behind, Harlan much more than Brown, enough material for a writer to work with.
0: Brown, appointed to the Supreme Court by Benjamin Harrison in 1890, now, this is the same year that the Louisiana legislature enacted this separate Car Act. So uh, a, a lot of alignment, or let's say the, the perfect storm for making this case, Which, along with the Dred Scott case and, let's say, Korematsu versus U.S., these are cases almost universally regarded as the worst Supreme Court of the United States decisions anyway in history. So what had the history of the court been on rights for people of color up until that time?
3: Well, after the 14th Amendment is enacted and the 13th and the 15th, so just very quickly, 13th abolishes slavery and makes... uh, Involuntary servitude, except in certain cases of crime. Right, uh, as a, as a punishment. For the imprisoned. And <clears throat> the 14th Amendment, which establishes equal protections under the law, and the 15th, which establishes voting rights for black men, not black women, of course, because neither white nor black women could vote at that time in a federal election. Uh, these are a revolution. Uh, they come after the Civil War, and the, the 14th and 15th Amendment in particular— Congress made a mistake in the 13th by not enacting this, the, the following clause, which they did in the, the later two, which is Congress shall have the right to enact legislation to enforce this amendment. Now, you might say to yourself, as I did, wait a minute, you don't really need to give Congress powers that it already has, but Congress was looking for all the legitimacy that it could have. Because they knew that this was going to be a tough thing to do, right. to enact these these equal rights. And that's, that's what gives rise to the <clears throat> three Civil Rights Acts, the 1866, 1870, 1875, these, these acts that Congress um, puts out there and that the Supreme Court, of course, gets challenges to immediately. They, just like today, everything, is, everything has a reaction. And the 1875 Act in particular, which is a public accommodations act, is resisted right away in the South, uh, and it gives rise to a spate of cases from all over the country, San Francisco, New York, and they, and they all collect, and then the Supreme Court takes a long, long time to do anything about it. Finally, in 1883, they issue the decision in what's now called the Civil Rights Cases. It doesn't have any name like Plessy versus Ferguson because there's a consolidation of five cases, and it rules that the, the act is unconstitutional because it goes too far, it imposes conditions on individuals and companies not just on states and they think that it, they they're narrowing their interpretation <clears throat> who is the only dissenter in the case John Marshall Harlan mm. He's, the only dis- he's one of two dissenters in a later civil rights case. He becomes the reliable dissenter on civil rights cases, and that's what he was in 1896.
0: We're learning about a landmark case in American history with Steve Luxenberg, author of Separate, the story of Plessy v. Ferguson and America's journey from slavery to segregation. Okay, so this is something that's often called the Constitutional Revolution, right, that the Congress— passes the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. The 14th is really the legal touchstone for Tourget's argument in the Plessy case. How did the court address those arguments?
3: Well, they rejected them as a basis for deciding the case. They don't decide it on the 13th and 14th Amendments. Uh, They do address them by rebuking Tourget for even raising the 13th. Toujé's view was is that it's a form of involuntary servitude to be banished to a separate car. Mm -hmm. Now, that sounds like a stretch. It's a stretch that John Marshall Harlan embraced wholeheartedly. He said, of course, this is what we're doing. We're not creating equal but separate accommodations, as this law says. We're taking black people away from white people. It's for the white people's benefit. Uh, and he, he said this is a perfectly appropriate uh, use of the 13th. And he had embraced the 13th earlier in, in that earlier case that I talked about. The 14th, um, Brown did address it, but he de- they decided the case not on the 14th Amendment, which he said didn't apply to a railroad company, in his view. Although you could argue, well, wait a minute, it's the state law that's mandating this. Isn't that exactly what the 14th Amendment is about, that states cannot enact statutes that abridge the rights of anybody on the basis of color. And he said, this is a states' rights case. Now, today, states' rights is kind of a synonym for the people who oppose equal rights, you know, like states' rights to do what they want. Well, in that day, states' rights was often the way states' uh, cases were decided. And he said, Louisiana has, under its police powers—police powers is a term of art in the law—has under its police powers— the right to enact legislation to preserve law and order and if they feel that violence is going to occur there was no evidence of any violence but if it's going to occur then they're within their their rights to enact this statute well that opens the door of course to all the other states enacting similar statutes it does it's not a crazy idea to talk about this violence because there of course was a lot of violence but it was the same logic in Massachusetts in the 1830s and 40s they were saying that and, and in Pennsylvania in 1867, there was a woman who refused to, to leave the white only car, a black woman, a teacher, and the Pennsylvania Supreme Court said that it would be better to stop this violence before it happens than punish the perpetrators afterwards. And he referred to <laughs> promiscuous seating, having people of color sitting next to people who are white is promiscuous mm-hmm. seating, seating. I think he knew what he was saying when he used the word promiscuous.
0: Well, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of intimation there and a source of a lot of fear. Well, Brown did write the opinion for the court's majority, but he did also accuse black people of being oversensitive. You know, since so long as the facilities were equal, separation was not a badge of inferiority. John Marshall Harlan, famously the only dissenter on this case, is often quoted for saying our Constitution is colorblind and the thin disguise of equal facilities does not obscure the fact that it was racial dominance rooted in slavery. Um, So a violation of the 14th Amendment. What did this decision unleash?
3: Well, you know, it's interesting that you talked about um, the thin disguise because it was clear that that's why they were enacting this equal but separate. That was their words. The, the words "separate but equal," which are today our term, is not in the majority decision, which I think is interesting too. It just becomes the phrase later on. So it unleashed what Harlan predicted. Harlan predicted that there was going to, that separation would spread. He did not predict separate water fountains and separate waiting rooms, but he did predict uh, in a courthouse. Why not have two separate systems of, systems of justice? And he said that it, he uh, predicted that this opinion would be one day regarded as shameful for the court as its Dred Scott decision of 1857, which denied citizenship rights to blacks, whether they were free or slave. Uh, And as you said before, it is regarded as one of the worst cases. And so Justice Harlan was
0: correct. Steve Luxenberg, I want to thank you so much for detailing this case in your book and with us today.
3: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Steve Luxenberg, he is talking about his book, Separate, tonight at the Atlanta History Center. He is senior editor of the Washington Post. Let's leave you with Lead Belly singing the Jim Crow blues.
1: Bon Johnson told me to This old Jim Crow-isms did bad luck to me
0: well, that is our show for today. On Second Thought is produced by Elena Rivera, Layton Rowell, LaRaven Taylor, and Amelia Brock. Alec Caslow is our engineer. Don Smith, our dean of grammar. And Amy Kylie, senior producer. We always love to hear from you. We're on Facebook and we're on Twitter at OST Talk. Or you can email us at onsecondthought at gpb.org. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. This is On Second Thought.
1: You're going to buy some Jim Crow. Every place you go Down in
0: Louisiana